have an answer to why something would bother one person but wouldn't bother another person? Maybe you both experience the exact same thing, but one person is you know, super like, upset about it, but another person is like, I mean, it's not a big deal to me. That doesn't really bother me. And where do pet peeves come from? <laughs> why do you have things that become your pet peeves? And I don't know, it's a weird word. What's the word peeve mean? I don't know. But are things that are like our pet peeves of like this is something that bothers me and that always bothers me and it kind of like always uh, gets me upset. And a word that people use nowadays is trigger. Why does something trigger one person but it doesn't trigger another person? It could be a word that's said or an action that's taken or something that you see and one person is triggered by it emotionally and another person isn't triggered at all. Why is it that we get so upset about certain things, but there's other things that we don't get upset about at all when somebody else gets upset by that thing, and we're like, well, it doesn't, it's not a big deal to me. And one of those things for me is phones. If I'm sitting, you know, Katie and I have you know, talked through this many times of where, when we're together, like I tend to get very upset or very triggered if we're supposed to be spending time together, but she's looking at her phone instead of paying attention to what we're doing together or instead of talking. And we've talked through this many times. You know, for me, from my perspective, it might just be like, well, it's just wrong to be on your phone in somebody else's presence, which we might all be able to agree on that. But for her, if I'm on my phone in her presence, she doesn't have that big of a reaction as I do. She doesn't get triggered by that. She might, in some instances, be like, you know, I prefer your phone be away when we're together, but it's not like I get super upset about it. But for me, I do, and we've talked through this. Like, why is that? Why are phones, somebody looking at a screen in front of me, uh, something that is very triggering emotionally to me, but not to her. In this series we've been in, The Joy of Being Loved, uh, this is our sixth message in it, the last one. Um, and so we've covered a lot. I mean, six messages, each one of them, we could spend another six messages on just talking about what that topic was about. And it's all these messages have been designed to, how can we learn to be loved by God, to live in the joy of being loved by God no matter what? And perhaps it's like, you know, there, it's been a, maybe you feel like it's been a lot, a lot of stuff to actually try to apply to my life. And so maybe you just go back and pick one of them and re-listen to that message, or if you saved some notes from it, um, think about, look over those notes and be like, this is the thing I'm going to pursue for the next couple months of the rest of this year. I want to grow and experiencing joy, and so this is the thing I'm going to uh, think about for the rest of the year. And so they've been, we've talked about how God actually likes us. The second one was on receive the gifts of the practice of gratitude, the gifts God's gift, God gives us. And the next one was be the real you or be real about your sin, what's going on in your life. And then uh, the next one we talked about was things that we turn to to replace God. And then last week we talked about letting others in to how we're feeling. And this week we're going to be talking about our stories and how the pain of our past, the story of our past that um, has led us to today how that affects us. And I think in many ways, this is the most personal message of all the six that we have gone through during this time together. And last week, we talked about how we have a joy tank. If you imagine us having a little tank, like a gas tank, uh, that, and that tank needs to be filled up with joy or drained of joy. And it can also develop leaks. And last week, we talked about the leak of uh, difficult feelings that we don't know how to get back to joy from them, like anger or disgust or despair. And this week, we're talking about the leak of past pain, pain from our past. I just want to read one quote uh, from this, this book that talks a lot about joy and how they, how they say how to identify when pain from your past may be invading your present. So they say this, 
When we see an emotional reaction that is disproportionate to the circumstances, we're likely seeing the stored energy of unhealed trauma. And when you heal trauma, the energy stored in the traumatic memory dissipates and is no longer triggerable. You have just plugged a hole in your joy tank. So it says when we see an emotional reaction that's disproportionate to the circumstances. So for me, what I was sharing was my emotional reaction to somebody looking at a screen in my presence is disproportionate to that action. So it's like, well, what's there? What's the unhealed pain in my story that is bringing that sort of reaction about? And so we can say pain in the past amplifies our reactions in the present. Pain from your past amplifies your reactions in the present. And I just want you to not, you know, not share this. You can write it down if you want or just in your mind or, you know, or in prayer. I just want you to consider during this message, what's a painful part of your past? It doesn't even have to be like, well, I know that it affects me in this way. It's just what's something that's happened to you that is painful from your story? And I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to think about that. And as we go through this message, we look at somebody else's painful story. I want you to just be thinking about that. Like, you know, in what ways can I relate to this guy's story, Joseph? And so I'm just going to give you 30 seconds. What's a painful part of your past? want to bring these things before God as we look at his word. So we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. We're going to do a very quick look at the life of Joseph. Joseph, And the passage that we read on Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 through 21 is a lot later in the story than we're going to start. And Joseph, he died at the age of 110. And what's significant, or what's neat about Joseph is that we have a record of some of the significant events in his life spanning a 39-year period from age 17 to age 56, and then from like 56 to 110 when he dies, there isn't much of a, it just says he died at 110. But from 17 to 56, those ages, 39 years, uh, we have uh, a look at the life, the life of Joseph. And when we read Genesis 50, 15 through 21, he's 56 years old, and you know, if you're comfortable, uh, raise your hand if you're around 56 years old in here rounding down to, okay, around 56 years old. So this isn't like the, so it's kind of like, I just want to make this real, like, okay, uh, Joseph is Vince and Jenny's age. Joseph is Susan's age. You know, so, so picture somebody going through this, at this moment in their life, they're saying, this is what my life has been like, and this is where I have brought uh, myself to, where God, where God has brought me to. And he's a Hebrew, a Jew, who ends up being second in command of a different nation, the nation of Egypt, uh, where Pharaoh is the only person that uh, is of a higher office than him. And he's managing the food for a seven-year famine. And we see in uh, chapter 50, his brother's standing before him asking for forgiveness. And so it's kind of like, you know, when you might have a TV episode or a movie where it's like, it starts off and you're right in the action, then it kind of fades to black and says, you know, however many, 24 hours earlier. It's kind of like we just read Genesis 50, the passage we read, and it's like he's managed, he's second command in Egypt, he's has his brothers are saying, I'm sorry. It's like, well, what happened here? How'd you get to be in Egypt when you're in Hebrew? Why are your brothers asking uh, for forgiveness? And it's like, you know, fade to black, and then 
39 years ago is what we're going to look at. So his story is Genesis chapter 37 through 50, a lot of chapters. And we see as we start that, that his family is filled with favoritism, with jealousy, with rivalry, with deception. And it's very dysfunctional. Uh, His dad had four wives. Two of them were sisters. You can work out how well that would go. Uh, He has 11 brothers. One of them is from the same mom. Remember, his dad has four wives. One of his brothers is from the same mom. And his mom dies in childbirth, giving birth to his younger brother. And so he doesn't have a, his mom dies at a very, when he's at a very young age. And so if you just look at this story, like, can you relate to that? Your family being dysfunctional and broken, or just people you know, where there's jealousy, rivalry, deception, and people fighting amongst each other. Maybe you have a painful thing that happened when uh, uh, your family was growing up and you lost somebody. And we see that at age 17, Joseph is hated at home. Uh, his dad loves him more because he loves him more. He gives him this special robe, and his brothers hate him for it. And he has these dreams, and he says, you're going to bow down before me. Hey, Dad, I had a dream last night. Guess what? I dreamed you guys are all going to bow down before me. And then his brothers hate him even more for that. It's like, come on, we hated you before. Now you're going to tell us this dream that one day we're going to be serving you. And so they start to hate him more, and they're jealous. And his dad sends Joseph out when he's age 17. Go check on your brothers in the field. They're take care of the sheep. Go check them out and bring a report back to me of how things are going. And as they see him coming, because they hate him, they conspire to kill him. Like, let's get rid of Joseph. None of us like him, right? Let's just get rid of him. And they say to this to themselves, we'll see what will become of his dreams. You have this dream, we're going to bow down before you. Well, we'll see how that works out. And so they strip him of his robe. Um, either he's naked or almost naked. Uh, he's thrown in a pit. And then they think, well, let's not kill him. Let's actually make a profit off of getting rid of Joseph. They see this They see this caravan of traders coming. They're heading down to Egypt, and they're like, let's not kill him, let's sell him, and then we can have some money by getting rid of him too. And so they sell him off to these traders, and they dip his robe in blood, and they come back to his dad and say, "Uh, we found this, is this your son's robe? And his dad says yes, and he uh, uh, concludes, my son was devoured by wild animals. And he mourns, 11 brothers, his 11 sons, or maybe his 10 out in the field, are now watching their dad mourn for the death of his favorite son, and they know that his son's not dead. And so he goes from hated at home to a slave in Egypt, and these traders bring him down to Egypt. They sell him to a man named Potiphar, who is an Egyptian. He's an officer, a pharaoh, and he's a captain of the guard. And what we see is he's working in Potiphar's house, as then we're told, this is going to be a theme in Joseph's life, but we're told the Lord was with Joseph, God was with Joseph, and he's successful. And Potiphar recognizes this. He says, God is with this guy, and he's making him successful in all these ways. So he finds favor with Potiphar, and then Potiphar makes him the overseer of everything he has, of all his house and his land and his food and whatnot. And then the Lord blessed Potiphar because of this. And this is a theme. Joseph, wherever he ends up, people are recognizing, God is with this guy, and there's something about him that is unique, and he keeps getting blessed because of it. But then one day Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. Uh, and he continues to resist it, and one day she grabs his robe, and as he's running away from her, she pulls the robe off, and then when her husband comes back home, she says, look, look look what Joseph tried to do. I have his robe. Uh, He tried to come in and sexually assault me. And so then Potiphar, sad, uh, has him thrown in prison. He doesn't want to get rid of Joseph, but he's like, well, if this is what happened, I've got to get rid of him. And so then in prison, so he goes from a slave in Egypt to a prisoner in Egypt, and we're told again, the Lord was with Joseph. 
He finds favor with the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison puts him in charge of the rest of the prison. And he doesn't even worry about Joseph's doing because he's like, Joseph, he's got things down. I don't even have to worry about his work. And we're told the Lord was with him and that he succeeds. But while in prison, a little while into it, uh, a cupbearer and a baker, these two guys that worked for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, are put in prison. Uh, and they have this dream one night. And then Joseph says, well, tell me the dream and I can interpret it. Remember, he had his dreams back when his father's house. So he has this way of looking at dreams and just figuring out what they are. Uh, and he says, well, here's the dream. Uh, Cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position in three days. Baker, you're going to be beheaded in three days. And three days later, sure enough, uh, it comes about. But Joseph, when he says this to the cupbearer, look, you're going to be restored to being next to Pharaoh and you know, having his ear. And I won't, could you do this favor for me? Please plead my case to him, basically. He says, I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And so he says, please don't forget me. Please plead my case to Pharaoh. Tell him that I've been sent here unjustly. That I'm not supposed to be here. But then the cupbearer gets out and he forgets about Joseph for two years. And if you're noticing the story so far, it's kind of like one thing after another, isn't it? First Joseph's hated. Then he gets thrown into a pit by his brothers. And then he gets human traffics. He is sold into human trafficking to be sent down to Egypt. Then in Egypt, he's doing well with his master. Then he gets accused of sexual assault, gets him thrown in prison wrongfully. And then in prison, he finally sees a way out. Oh, cupbearer, you're going to get restored to Pharaoh. Please tell him, plead my case to him. And he forgets about him for two years. And maybe you've felt like that. Maybe you've been there where you're like, God, it's just one thing after another. Can't I catch a break? It's like as soon as I start to get a handle on things, get my feet under me, then another thing, then another thing, then another thing. And perhaps you've been there, or perhaps you're there now. And I don't know exactly why, where I saw it, but it was like in the last week or two, I saw this like clip from, like a, I think it's called American Ninja Warriors. Is that where they have the course, and they're like jumping on stuff and climbing on stuff? People know what that is? Okay, okay, you, you got the picture in my mind. It's like this guy is just going through obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, and I'm like, that's kind of what life is like. It's like, as soon as you get through this one crazy thing, it's like, okay, then there's another one. You haven't even caught your breath, and you just got to keep going through it, all these crazy obstacles. And so maybe that's how you're feeling, and I'm sure that's how Joseph felt. Well, J- Joseph goes from prisoner in Egypt to prince in Egypt, because then Pharaoh has a dream, and the cupbearer remembers, oh, I remember a guy in prison. He, predict, he interpreted my dream and told me exactly what happened. And so Joseph is called before Pharaoh and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. Well, this is what it means. There's going to be seven years of plenty in terms of your food and crops. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. And it's going to be like those years of plenty didn't even exist. It's going to be so bad. And so he gives this proposal. Not only interprets it, but gives a proposal that this is what you should do. During the seven years, store up food so that you have food to give out during those seven years of famine. And the proposal pleases Pharaoh. And he says, is there anyone else who has the Spirit of God in them, like Joseph? So recognizing, again, God's with this guy. And then he sets him over all his house, all his people, all his land, and he says, only I will be greater than you. So he's second command in Egypt, and we're told he's 30 years old when he enters into the service of Pharaoh. And then those years of plenty come, seven years of plenty, and he takes on an Egyptian name, he marries an Egyptian woman, Egyptian wife, he has two sons, and the first he names him Manasseh, it sounds like the Hebrew word, make to forget. And he says, I'm naming you Manasseh because God has made me forget all my hardship and all of my father's house. And then he names the second Ephraim, 
which in Hebrew means makes fruitful. And he says, I'm naming you that because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so you see as he names these kids, he's got his past behind him, and he's trying to move on from it. But can you hear the pain? He names his kids after the pain he's experienced up to this point in his life, up to being around uh, 30-ish years old. So I want to forget all the hardship in my father's house. God has made me plentiful in the land of my affliction. And it's been at least 13 years, possibly up to 20 years, uh, since he's left his dad's house. 13 years, 15 years, 20 years. And it's still with him, that pain of what happened to him. And maybe you've experienced that, that there's a pain from your past that is just stuck with you. You can't seem to get rid of it. It's like, well, hopefully once I do this, then that'll be gone. Or hopefully once I get this, then it'll be gone. It just keeps sticking with you and keeps coming up. And so that's what happens during the years of plenty, during the years of the famine. It's 20 years. This is going to be a seven-year time period. It's 20 years after you're sold into slavery, and this famine hits the entire region. And his dad and brothers you know, hits the region of where they're living too, up in Canaan, which is now the land of Israel. Uh, his dad and brothers need food. They hear there's food in Egypt. And so dad says, sends his other sons down to Egypt to get food, not knowing that his son... And the brothers, not knowing their brother they try to get rid of, is the one giving out the food in Egypt. And so, at about 37 years old, his brothers are standing in front of him, needing food. And without him, they're going to starve. They're standing in front of him saying, we've come down here for food because things aren't going well for us. And they don't recognize him. He looks like an Egyptian. I mean, it's been however many years later, what did I say, 37 years old. It's been 20 years, and now he looks like an Egyptian, an Egyptian name. You can assume Egyptian kind of uh, a hair. I think they cut buzz their hair off and all that stuff. So he looks like an Egyptian, dressed like an Egyptian. They don't recognize him, but uh, they he recognizes them. And I wonder what you would do in this situation. Well, this is nice. <laughs> they don't recognize me. I mean, he can even do it without them even knowing their brother hurt them back. It's like these guys that hurt him so much staying in front of them, and he's holding their life in his hands that not just the food, but I mean, he could say, Guards, take these guys away and have them locked up. Like, he has that kind of power. These, and he accuses them of being spies. And he could just set up, off with them, get rid of them. These guys are spying. He holds their life in his hands. And he treats them as strangers on the first trip. And they make a second trip down later. And on that second trip, he reveals himself to them. I'm Joseph. And they are speechless. <laughs> they don't know what to say. And they're just like, oh, uh, uh, what? Like, we got rid of you. Now you're our brother we got rid of. And he tells them, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. God sent me before you to preserve life. And he says, bring dad down. Bring, bring everybody down. And he, then when he sees his dad, it says they hugged each other and they weeped a long while, giving that little detail that they're just holding each other and weeping after not seeing each other uh, for however many years. And they bring dad down. It's been, he's 39 years old at this point. And his dad dies in Egypt 17 years later when he's about 56 years old. And so this is where it brings us to the point in the story that we read, Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, is that now that dad's dead, the brothers think, well, now Joseph is going to pay us back for what we did to him. Now dad's dead. And so they decide, send a message to Joseph, tell him, uh, dad, before he died, said you ought to forgive us. So they add in a, get a little lie there. I don't know, maybe Jacob said there or not. We weren't, weren't told it. But he's like, dad, before dad died, he said to forgive us. And Joseph calls them in. Where he hears this, he weeps, he calls them in, and they bow down before him. Remember his dream? Your brothers and your dad are going to bow down before you. They do it multiple times. 
And then we get what he says to them. And they're like, Dad told us to forgive, told us to tell you to forgive us. And then he says this to them. Verse 19, Genesis chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So at this point, we might ask, well, how did you get here, Joseph? What brought you to this point in your life? Can you relate to any of this? At 17, sold into human trafficking because his brothers hated him and were jealous of him. And maybe we'll do it from the first person. Uh, They told my dad I was dead. Then I worked for a guy until his wife tried to seduce me and accused me of sexual assault, and I was in prison wrongfully. I was given responsibility in prison. I interpreted a guy's dream who could get me out, but he forgot about me. At 30, I was brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dream, and I was made second in command, overseeing all the food. At 37, during the famine, my brothers, who sold me 22 years ago, came for food to survive the famine. And at 39, I saw my dad for the first time in 22 years. Very painful past. So how do you heal from that? What effect would that kind of story have on his present life? As we look to make this personal, just think, if any of you, any of you have a messed up family, hate, jealousy, people not talking, tension on holidays, if you have broken relationships, you're not talking to someone, or if you've been blamed for something you didn't do, if you've been in jail or close, or you've been forgotten by someone you counted on, to feel like one bad thing after another. If you try to put your painful past behind you, try to start a new life, but it keeps coming up and you can't get rid of it. Is there anybody you hope to never see again? If you have situations in a relationship, you just try not to think about because if you do, you're going to be mad or crying. Is there anyone you love that you haven't seen in a really long time? How does this past steal our joy now? In the beginning we talked about triggers, things that set us off, to get us angry, sad, or scared. And it's like somebody has pushed a button. That's what a trigger is. Like, I feel triggered by that. And it's somebody's pressed a button. And that button, that trigger, got installed at some point in your life. And there's a reason that our oversized reactions to things are there. It's because at some point, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, a trigger, a button was installed. And now when somebody presses it, you have this oversized reaction that brings up all that pain. And so as we consider, how, do we, how does the past steal our joy? As we go through life, we have these buttons. I don't know where they're installed. I was going to say my legs. I don't know where they would be, on our heart or somewhere. But it's like we're going through life. I'm trying to be joyful. I'm trying to be happy. I'm trying to be thankful. And this person said this, hit this button, and all of a sudden, woof, all this anger and sadness comes. And I'm walking through. And then there's another thing. Just Things just come out. People are pressing these buttons. And so a huge thing that steals our joy is our pain from the past because we go through life being triggered in ways that we don't even understand why it's happening. And so as you consider how to heal from the past, first we need to pay attention. Pay attention to your oversized reactions. And this is, you know, I can't give you like a three-step plan for how to heal from the past. (laughs) That's completely impossible in the eight minutes or whatever I have left. Um, It will take perhaps a lifetime depending on how painful the thing is. And it may always be with you something you're dealing with. But what you can start doing is start paying attention to your oversized reactions to things and asking, why? 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 I just got really mad. I was telling you about when people, 
my, my wife in particular looks at phones in my presence when we're supposed to be spending time together, it's like, whoa, like, I just had an oversized reaction to a very small act looking at the phone. Like, can I say, hey, could you put your phone away so we can just focus on each other now? But instead of an oversized reaction, okay, what, why is that there? Why do I have a trigger installed in me in regard to somebody looking at a screen uh, in my presence? And we can ask, well, okay, what happened? What's the facts for what actually happened? Katie looked at her phone, looking at the screen. How did I feel? I felt angry. I felt sad. I felt uncared about. And then we ask, well, okay, what does this remind me of? What's the story I'm telling? The story I'm telling is you don't care about me. I'm not worth your time. And it's like, well, what does that remind you of? Well, it reminds me of when I was a kid, when screens were very important uh, in my family, and we had a hard time talking to each other because a screen was on. Oh, this reminds me of when I was growing up, and we can... Uh, look back in our past and be like, I had this reaction. Here's the fact of what they did. This is how I felt. This is how I interpreted it. You don't care about me. Whoa, why would that be what I conclude from that? What does this remind me of back in my story? When we do that, when we see those oversized reactions, we've identified an area of unprocessed pain. We have a tender wound that keeps getting bumped. A butt was installed back then, a trigger. And if you think about, well, what are Joseph's triggers? Man, I mean, we don't, we're told... But it's like every time maybe there's a meal that reminds them of home, like my dad always cooked this. I haven't seen my dad in however long it's been. It just like triggers them. Or somebody says something to him that sounds like what his brother said to him when they were hating him and jealous of him. And it just takes them right back. And it could just be these little things that don't even mean very much to anybody else, but they mean a lot to him. And part of healing is like Joseph. What do we do with that? When we see we had this oversized reaction, we're like, well, this is what happened. This is how I felt. This is what it reminds me of. Now what do we do? It's like, this reminds me of 20 years ago when this happened to me. And it just comes right back up. And we can choose to be mad or bitter or resentful, choose to tell our story like we're the victim of all these people doing bad stuff to us. But part of healing is finding the freedom that Joseph found. So when you identify those things, Joseph, he doesn't seek revenge. Just I'm going to say give you four things here. He does not seek revenge. So when you identify this is something in my past that's painful, it's affecting me today. Don't seek revenge. He says, I'm not in the place of God to judge you. Like, I'm not, be, don't be afraid. Like, it's between you and God, which, by the way, that'd be the scarier person to deal with, uh, is that this is between you and God. I'm not going to take revenge. I'm not the judge of you. Second, he doesn't minimize the evil. He doesn't say, oh, Joseph, you know, Dad said to forgive us. And he's like, guys, it wasn't a big deal, like water under the bridge. He's like, no, what you did to me was evil. <laughs> he names it as evil. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't seek revenge but he also doesn't minimize the bad that was done to him. And thirdly, interpret your story through God, not God through your story. Interpret your story through God and not God through your story. And so the first way would be, if this happened to me, it means this about God. If I have had a painful relationship growing up, if I got this sickness, if I got in this car crash, if that happened to me, this bad thing, then it means this about God. He's not good, doesn't care. Doesn't, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with me. But instead, interpret uh, your story through God. If this is what God is like, it means this about what happened to me. That even Joseph said, you intended evil, but God intended good. That God took that bad, that evil, and he used it for good. And so we know what's true of God. He is good. He's loving. He never takes his eye off the ball. He didn't, like, you know, fall asleep at the wheel, and then that bad thing happened to you. He's like, oh, I'm back. I'm, I'm taking care of you. Again, no, he's always taking care of us, and he's taking the bad that happens to us and uses it for good. So I just want us to say this together. I'll, I'll say it first. God is powerful enough 
to use bad for good. I'll say it one more time. God is powerful enough to use bad for good. Can we say that together? God is powerful enough to use bad for good. And we can ask, what does God intend for me from this? And the answer is good. Romans 8.21, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And the next verse says, he's making us more like his son Jesus. Jesus suffering and then glory. And that's what God's doing with us, suffering and then glory. So I just want to invite you to write this on your bulletin or on your phone or something. Uh, And it's just a simple sentence. God is using blank, bad thing, for good. I'll just give you 15 seconds to write that down. Maybe you don't, nothing comes to mind right now, but uh, God is using blank, this bad thing, for good. And you can look back in your past like, this happened to me and it never should have happened to me and it was evil. And you can put that evil thing in that bracket and say, God is using that thing for good. And I'll just give you uh, 15, 20 seconds to do that. You'll notice that that sentence isn't God is using this bad thing for blank. But you're not filling in, oh, I know what he's using it for. I know what he's doing through this. Because I think sometimes we won't know. I still ask God. There's things in my past where I'm like, I trust God that you're doing something good with this. And I don't see it yet. I don't know what it is. Uh, And it's like, I may never know. And that's okay. But we can trust that God is using that thing for good. At age 17, God showed Joseph his dream for Joseph's life. One day, your dad and brothers are going to bow before you. You didn't really tell them why they're going to bow before him, but they're going to bow before you. This is how I want to use you, Joseph. This is the purpose I've given you. And then it takes 39 years for that dream for his life to come about. He saved his family. He saved many others. And looking back, he sees what God has done. He sees the evil of how God has taken that evil that his brothers intended against him and how God has used it for good. 39 years later, he's, he's seeing it. He's looking back and seeing that God was with him. God wasn't, he wasn't left alone. God wasn't against him. God didn't abandon him. But God, you were with me. How could God use it for good if he wasn't with them? And you saw people kept seeing, wow, like this... God's with the, you know, Potiphar says, I can see God's with you, puts him in charge of stuff. The keeper of the prison sees God is with you, I'm going to put you in charge of stuff. Pharaoh sees God is with you, I'm going to put you in charge of stuff. And so what happened in all that, they're recognizing this guy is holding on to God, and his God is with them. But even though he's in this situation, they're just seeing, like, Joseph, there's something about him that they can see God is with you. And that can give us hope in our painful circumstances now or that we look back on. I want to read. Just a little paragraph from this of, of this book. It's called God Attachment. And it's telling us a little bit of information uh, of how important our, like looking at our stories is uh, as people. It says, The very essence of secure adult attachment with others and with God is the ability to understand our lives. 
It's a coherent story that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. Event, it, sorry. It's a coherent story that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly events and integrates them into an understanding of why we are, why we are the way we are. In an important way, the Bible is the story of God's dealings with humankind, and each of our individual testimonies or stories is our way of understanding how God has worked in our lives and continues to do so even today. And so there's, we have this, this book that God has given us of God saying, this is how I'm interacting with everybody, all of humankind. But then we have our own individual story of like, this is how God has been interacting with me in my life. And one thing that's helpful, I think, is like people will talk about something called the problem of evil. Um, why, if there's a good and powerful God, why is there any evil or suffering or pain in the world? Surely he would do something about it. And what the Bible gives us is not really an answer or a plan. God doesn't solve the problem of evil. But what God does is overcome evil with good. It's that God wins. That God overcomes any evil done to us with good. He doesn't give an answer. He gives himself. What he does is he enters into the story, the story of evil, so that he can change the end of it. That Jesus himself comes into it, and he changes it. And if I, I just wanted, it was God's timing. Hudson and I are, it was our second time through the Jesus Storybook Bible, and like this week was the story of Joseph. Let me just read what I thought just put it better than I. Uh, I mean, I could have written it out, but I thought they did a good job. He says, so at the end of the story of Joseph, it says, one day God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened in this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. And so when we look at the cross, why can the cross be beautiful, the cross on that window? Why can't it be beautiful? Because God took the worst evil and did the greatest good with it. The death of his own son, that God himself would enter into the story of evil, and he would take on that evil, though he did nothing wrong, so we can be freed from it. God overcomes the evil with good. That's what we're told to do. Romans chapter 12. Overcome evil with good. Not figure out the plan for evil. Figure out the purpose for evil. It's like overcome evil with good. And that's what God has done. And for some of us, you maybe heard the term an armchair quarterback or Monday morning quarterback. Uh, and we can kind of be like watching a football game. And then we're like, that guy was wide open. You should have thrown it to him. And it's like we think we could kind of do a better job of the quarterback who's getting, you know, these like 300-pound guys that would break us like twigs running at him. And it's like, come on, he was wide open. Like, it's so easy. How could you mess up that throw or that catch? It's like somebody's like leaping in the air, like about to fall over with one hand. It's like, should have caught that. We're paying you millions and you couldn't catch that. And we kind of were like, I could do a better job than them. And we can kind of do armchair author to God. God, I could have written a better story for my life. What are you doing? Like, you're, I, we think we can write a better story, but we want to be a people who trust God as the best, best offer of our life, that he himself has entered into the story, and now he's changed the ending for us, that God is the best author of our story, the story of our life. Let's pray. Father, it can be heavy for us as we consider things that have happened to us in our life. 
God, you tell us that you are the God of all comfort, the Father of mercy. So, Lord, I ask that you would make your comforting presence felt now in this room. That as we've talked about this, we've thought of painful parts of our past. That we're looking back and we might think, what in the world? Why did that happen? I didn't deserve that. God, would you just give us comfort? Not that we know why it happened or what you're doing with it, but we're comforted that you are with us, that you've not abandoned us or against us. In the name we pray. Amen.